All right, so we are continuing in our book of Judges, Shof Team. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 9. I tried to do 9 and 10 this week, but I got halfway through the week, and I was like, you know what, I think we're going to have to hang out in 9 for a little while because there's a lot going on. Um, I love the way that Adonai sets things up in that the parashah this week is Korach. And as Jeanette had us there, the verses that she read, man, just shout about what we're going to hear from the book of Judges in chapter 9. Uh, just, just as you think about what she read for us, just as we go through Judges, think about that, and you'll see exactly the things just line up and see what happens when the children of Israel go astray. And they seek to actually put a king ahead of them before it's the correct time. So we're going to be on page 220, uh, 281 in the blue Complete Jewish Bible in the pews there. As we get started in Shof Team, there are two things that we really have to always remember every time we get in here. It's too easy for us to say, well, why didn't Israel get it? Why do they keep messing up? Why do they keep going back to the false gods and to doing their own will? And we always have to remember that God has a purpose and a plan for Israel. They are never going to be replaced. They will always be his chosen people. But at the same time, as David said earlier, God has a purpose and a plan for all of us as the goyim, as the Gentile nations as well. God will always meet us where we are as we take steps towards him. But we have to take those initial steps. So for those who have not been with us before, let's get a running start here. We're going to give a little t uh, history back up. So Yehoshua leads the children of Israel into the land after their wanderings. And then we, it's followed by the time of the judges. We had Othniel. And then we had Ehud, and then Shamgar, there you are, followed by Deborah, and then Gideon. So last time we were together, we learned a lot about Gideon. Now we're going to hear the rest of the story. What happens after Gideon passes away? We know that after a judge passes away, the children of Israel generally fall back into this whole thing of they do evil in the sight of Adonai, and they're judged by the nations around them, and then they come to repentance, and they come back to Adonai once again. This time it's going to be a little different, though. You're going to see a little change to the whole narrative of what's going on. So last time we learned about Jerubbabel or Gideon. His name means let Baal take up a grievance. He directly defied the false god they were worshiping at the time, tore down the altar and used it to build a fire and an altar to Adonai. Gideon, if you remember, had an army of 32,000 men at his side to go against the Midianites. And yet Adonai said it's too much, and he dwindles it down to his army's only 300 men strong. Adonai brings a great victory to Gideon, or to Israel through Gideon. And so we see that Gideon then ruled and judged the nation for 40 years. This is what the end of chapter 8 said to us last time. Gideon became the father of 70 sons because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem. And she too bore him a son whom he called Avimelech. Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age, I love that saying, and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Avirizi. But as soon as Gideon was dead, the people of Israel began again, went astray after the Baalim and made Baal Barit their god. 
Adonai, they forgot Adonai, their God, who had saved them from the power of all their enemies on every side, and they showed no kindness toward the family of Yerubbabel, that is Gideon, to repay them for all the good he had done for Israel. So we see Israel begins to fall into the same pattern as we already talked about. They, Adonai says, I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt. I led you to the land I swore to your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. So they come into the land of Israel. They have peace. They become apathetic towards the things of God, which leads to their sin, which leads to them being oppressed by an outside force. They then cry out to God, and Adonai raises a righteous judge to lead them back to himself. They're then delivered from their enemies on a physical level, and then they have peace once again. And yet we see the same cycle take place over and over and over again. And we're going to see that happen now in chapter 9. This same cycle is going to begin, but the oppression does not come from without. We're going to see that it comes from within. So verse 1 of chapter 9. Avimelech, the son of Yerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, and spoke with them and with the whole clan of his maternal grandfather. He said, please ask all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Yerubbabel rule over you, or that one person rule over you? And remember that I am your blood relative. Hey, isn't it better that a brother rule over you than some outsider that you don't know who's maybe not here all the time? Verse 3, his mother's brothers spoke to all the men of Shechem and said all this about him so that they followed their feelings and supported Avimelech. They argued, after all, he is our brother. I mean, wouldn't he want our best interest? This word feelings is super interesting. Um, that just popped out at me uh, when I read it in the Complete Jewish Bible the other week. Uh, the word feelings comes from the word, or excuse me, in the Hebrew, it is the word lev. It comes from the word that means heart. So when we see this in here, it's the heart refers to the feelings and the will and the intellect. So basically, as we look within Scripture, we see someone talking about their heart. It's kind of like... I think the best way that I've found to describe it is it's kind of like the mixing chamber. So you have your, your mental capacity up here, your logic, thinking about things. You have your gut, you know, that I feel like this. You know, my emotions, I just have a gut feeling. And then your heart is kind of like this battleground, like where the, where the gut feelings and the, the intellectual come together and they battle it out to figure out what your will is that's going to come forth from your mouth. So in their gut, they had these emotions. In their mind, they're like, yeah, he is our brother. He probably has our best interest in mind. And they reasoned amongst themselves, and their feelings came out as, okay, I think this is going to work out good for us. They also gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal Barit. And he used these to pay for, no, for no excuse me, pay for nothing pay good for nothing, there we go, good for nothing thugs to follow him. He went back to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Erubable, all 70 of them. On a single rock he did, except for Yotam, Erubable's youngest son, who stayed alive because he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all Bet Milo got together and went and made Avimelech king at the oak by the cult pillar in Shechem. Things are not going good. We have a lot of bad going around. They want a king, 
and he, Avimelech shows up and says, hey, I could be your king. I can be your ruler. Um, let's just do it the way that we want. This is the theme. And Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And so they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Not only are they starting this whole thing out with a conspiracy and assassination, they're saying, let's go to the cult pillar and anoint you in the name of Adonai. There's a lot that's it's not lining up here. This isn't good. And the worst part about that is, like I said, this isn't an outside nation coming to oppress them. This is happening from within. So Gideon had refused the throne. Remember that? They asked him, we learned last time we were together, said, Gideon, we want you to rule over us. Be, be ruler over us, you and your sons and your sons' sons. And Gideon said, nope, nope, nope. Adonai is your king. That's exactly what we heard in our Haftorah portion today. That Jeanette read is Adonai is your king. So when Shemuel comes on, he's the last judge of Israel. He says, hey, Adonai is your king. You don't need another king, but he does relent. And then we see that they actually go about and they do it the correct way with Adonai taking the lead. So this time, though, Adonai is not even in the picture with them. They're doing whatever they want. So, verse 7, when they told this to Yotam, he went and stood up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. Then God will listen to you. So remember Yotam, he's the last one. All of his brothers have been slaughtered on a single stone. And he's the last one, and he's like, hey, I got a prophecy. Now, Shechem is an interesting city, super interesting. So it lies right in between these two mountaintops. So we have Mount Eval and Mount Gerizim. Now, remember, these are the mountains that Adonai says to the children. He says, when you come into the land, I want you to go up every seven years to these two mountains, and I want you to stand on one side or on the other side, and from one side, you're going to say the curses that will come upon Adon uh, the people of Israel if they disobey Adonai, and on the other side, you're going to yell out the blessings that are going to come across the people of Israel when they do obey him. This place has great acoustics. So, the, uh, Gideon's youngest son, Yotam, stands up on the Mount of Blessing, and he pronounces a curse, is what we're going to hear. The rabbis drosh back and forth about this quite a bit, and it seems like the consensus comes to the idea that the reason he stands on the Mounting of Blessing to pronounce a curse upon the people is to point out the idea that evil deeds done with the best of intentions have the ability to transform blessings into curses. They had every good intention to have a leader for them so that they wouldn't get oppressed by the outside nations. But they did it with an evil intention. They started with murder and conspiracy. Good intention. Bad, bad way of pulling it off, though. So continuing on, once the trees, so he, he's going to tell a parable now. Once the trees went out to choose a king to rule over them. But they said to the olive tree, rule over us. But the olive tree replied, am I supposed to leave my, uh, my oil, which is used to honor both God and humanity, just to go and hold sway over the trees? So the trees then went to the fig tree and they said, hey, you come and rule over us. But the fig tree replied, am I supposed to leave my sweetness and my good fruit just to go and hold sway over the trees? 
So the tree said to the grapevine, you come and rule over us. But the grapevine replied, am I supposed to leave my wine, which gives cheer to God and humanity, just to go and hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, you come and rule over us. And the thorn bush replied, if you really make me king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the thorn bush and burn down the cedars of the Levon. Thorn bush goes a little crazy. So it's interesting. So up until this point, we've had a few different judges who have come onto the scene. And Yotam is actually going to point out three specific judges. He says, hey, Othniel came on. What a great guy. You know, in retrospect, he brought honor to God and humanity, just like an olive tree does. There's oil that's used in the offerings, and there's oil that's used for humans to consume and to grow. He also brings up the fig tree. The fig tree represents Deborah. Remember, she sat under the fig of Deborah. She judged the nation. Her, her sweetness and her good fruit, the judgment of the nation, and the prophecy that she put forth was good, and it was sweet. Did they ask her to rule over her, them? No, they didn't. The third one that they could have asked to rule over them was Gideon. Remember, Gideon was, when he was called by God, he was inside of a wine press, threshing wheat. They say, hey, then they went to the, the vine, and they said, hey, can you rule over us? And they literally did ask Gideon to rule, and he said, nope, nope. But then... They go to the thorn bush. And the thorn bush says, hey, it's kind of like their last ditch effort. And the thorn bush says, hey, I'll rule over you if you come sit under my shade. Now, I don't know if any of you have sat under a thorn bush any time recently. Doesn't sound too comfortable. They don't grow super huge. And if you want to enjoy their shade, you got to snuggle right in there. And they had the thorns. That's the whole point. Thorns are interesting because they give no intrinsic value to a plant except to protect it from the things that might try to eat it. And we're going to see this happen because Yotam's going to explain. I love it when the Bible gives us a prophecy and then explains it right away. I love that because then there's, we're not going to have trouble interpreting it. And not only are we going to hear the interpretation Yotam's going to give us, we're also going to see the rest of the story. We're going to see the whole thing play out in this one chapter. So verse 16, Yotam says, here's the point of my parable. You ha have you been honest and straightforward in making Avimelech your king? Have you been fair with Jerubbabel, or Gideon, and his household and treated him as he deserves? How did you treat the last judge? Did you give him honor and respect? My father, Gideon, fought on your behalf, risking his life, and rescued you from the power of Midian. And now you're rebelling against my father's household. You've killed all 70 sons on a single stone and made Avimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the men of Shechem, just because he's your brother. I say this. If you are dealing honestly and righteously with Jerubbabel and his household today, then may you enjoy Avimelech and may he enjoy you. But if not, let fire come out from Avimelech and burn up the men of Shechem and Bet Milo, 
and let fire come from the men of Shechem and Bet-Milo and burn up Avimelech. Then Yotam fled, making his way to Ba'er, and he lived there for fear of Avimelech and his brothers. So Shechem and Avimelech have a relation, budding relationship that's starting to come on here. It's not a good one. It hasn't started well. Like I said before, it started with conspiracy and an assassination. And ultimately, in the end, according to the prophecy of Yotam, it will end in mutual destruction, mutual assured destruction. Maybe we've heard that before. My country has nukes, so your country has nukes. We're not going to nuke each other because then we have a mutually assured destruction. That's the thought going forward here. But we all know with the day and age that we're living here, that doesn't last. The nations or the people who have unhealthy relationships built will end up destroying one another. So human existence is dependent upon relations. Everything we do, we need people. If I want to make a baby, I have to have a wife. We have to get married, and then we can make a baby. If I want to have a shul, there has to be people here to come and hang out with me, right? I mean, if we're going to worship on Shabbat, we all need to come together and to worship and have oneg and have a great time. So we need relationships in our lives. We can't ignore them. What we do need to be careful of is that there are two types of relationships. There's healthy relationships, and there are just outright toxic relationships. When we look at relationships, a healthy relationship consists of things like mutual respect, honesty, trust, individuality, good communication, or compromise. You know, you can come together and say, well, I can see where you're going, but can you see where I'm going? Yes, I can. Okay, we can meet in the middle. However, the toxic relationships are things that have a lot of control, hostility, dishonesty, disrespect, and intimidation. We do need to be so careful about our relationships. And here's the thing we always need to remember as well, is any time in our relationships, if I have my relationship with my wife, sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it gets toxic. That's part of the human condition. But the major difference is when we are involved in a toxic relationship, we need to remember that toxicity can be made clean, but acknowledgement of the initial problem must first be addressed. So we don't stay in toxic relationships because they get worse and worse, unless someone says, I'm being toxic, I'm sorry, Please forgive me. And then on the other hand, you have to say, you know what? You were being wrong. I forgive you for holding bitterness against you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Can we love each other? Yes, we can. Let's go forward now. With that much being said, though, there are some toxic relationships that just need to be cut off. There's absolutely no reason for anyone, male or female, to stay in any relationship that is abusive that is not healthy. There are plenty of ways to get help. I can, I can, I can look out in this crowd and I can see at least five men. If, if a woman were to come and say, hey, I'm in a toxic relationship, they'd be like, okay, let's get in the car, let's go take care of this. You know, because that's the way we are in our community. We love everyone that's in our community. But don't be afraid to cut off those toxic relationships that are harmful. Verse 22. We're about to see the beginning stages of the breakdown of the toxicity in this relationship with Avimelech in, in the city. So Avimelech was chief over Israel for three years. Mind that word chief. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. 
But God sent a spirit of discord between Avimelech and the men of Shechem, so that the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Avimelech. This came about so that the crime against the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be avenged and the responsibility for their bloody death be placed on Abimelech, their brother, who had murdered them, and on the men of Shechem who helped kill his brothers. So the men of Shechem sent out men to ambush him on the mountaintops. They robbed everyone who went past them, and Abimelech was told about it. So they're sitting in wait trying to kill him. Now Gaal... The son of a slave came with his brothers and went on to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. So this is super interesting. So first of all, they put their trust in Avimelech, who is the offspring of a sub-wife, if I can say that. She's, she's a concubine. She's not an official wife. She's a concubine. And now we're going to see the person that Adonai is going to use to start this whole ball rolling is not the child of a concubine, but in fact, the child of a slave, so someone who has even less rights and authority within, within the civilization. So Gaal, the son of, the, of a slave, came with his brothers and went on to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out into the field, gathered their grapes, and pressed the juice out of them. Then they held a feast and went into the house of their God to eat and to drink, and there they insulted Avimelech. Gaal, the son of the slave, said, Who is Avimelech? Think of the contrast with Shechem. Why should we serve Avimelech? Isn't he the son of Jerubbabel? Isn't Zavul his officer? Serve the men of Hamer, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve Avimelech? Avimelech's not on the scene. He's in another place. Because we're going to find out as we continue to read, not only has Shechem fallen into this issue of trying to make him the ruler over them, all of Israel has gotten on suit now. They're all trying to get in on this whole thing. And so Avimelech is not there. If I were in control of this people, I'd get rid of Avimelech. Then addressing his words to Avimelech, he said, Come out and fight. I don't care if you make your army even larger. This guy's drunk, just to clarify the air there. He is not in his right mind. The reason the Bible says they pressed the grapes and they drank, it, it, he's got liquid courage going through him. So he's ready and he's ready and willing to go. But it's interesting to see that Avimelech's rulership over the people had become so painful to the nation that even a slave was compelled to speak against him. It's a big deal. Slaves don't speak up against their masters. But the pain was felt so hard that even he was compelled to speak up. Roddick says, The scripture does not say that of him, Vayishpot, or he judged. So we're going back to verse 22. Avimelech was not a judge because judges live righteously and seek to raise the level of their followers. Avimelech is not a judge. So then we have to say, okay, well, what is he? Well, in verse 22, we heard of what he is. What he is is Vayasar. This is the word that's used for leader here in verse 22. He's a ruler. And it gives the idea of to vanquish, to have power or to rule over. So this isn't just someone who's been an appointed ruler. This is someone who has authority to rule, but they're doing it with an iron fist. So he's oppressing his own people. The oppression has come within, from within Israel, not from without. So this is a whole other ballgame here. 
And it's interesting to see that while oppression happens from the outside into Israel, Adonai will raise up a judge to bring deliverance. When it happens from inside, Adonai steps in and he says, I'm going to take care of business now. It's a big deal. Adonai is about to step up and take care of things. So verse 30, when Zavul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of a slave, he was enraged. He sent messengers to Avimelech and Tormah with this message. Gaal, the son of a slave, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're inciting the city against you, you and the men with you. There's no goods already, remember? You and the men with you should come up now at night and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, get up early, as soon as the sun rises, and attack the city. Then, when Gaal and the men of him come out to fight you, do whatever you can to them. So this is kind of messed up, too. So Zavul is the ruler of Shechem. And he's telling Gaal, or excuse me, he's telling Avimelech to come and attack his own city so that he can get this problem taken care of of Gaal. He doesn't want to take care of it himself, but he wants Avimelech to take care of it. And he's willing to put his own civilization's lives in jeopardy to do so. This is come, becoming really toxic, really toxic. So Avimelech and all the men with him came up by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four groups. Gaal, the son of a slave, went out and stationed himself at the entrance to the city gate. Then Avimelech and his men rose from their ambush. Then Gaal saw the men. He said to Zavul, look, there are men coming down from the mountaintops. And Zavul answered, nah, you're seeing shadows of the mountains as if they were men. And Gaal said again, look, 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 there are men coming down from the main hill in the land, and one group is coming up on the road from the fortune teller's oak. He's like, dude, there are people coming. And Zavul turns to him and says, so where's your mouth now? You said, who is Avimelech? Why should we serve him? Aren't these the people you despise? Go on out and fight them. So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought Avimelech. But Avimelech gave chase, and Gaal took to flight. Many fell wounded, strewn all along the way to the city gate. Then Avimelech took up residence in Aruma. And Zavul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they could not live in Shechem. So Zavul took the easy way out as a leader. And he said, I'm going to let somebody else do my dirty work instead of manning up and taking care of it. He had the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And for any of you who've ever been in a situation like that, it never works out good. Because the enemy of the enemy, who's my friend, ends up becoming the enemy when the mutual enemy has been destroyed. Got to be really careful. So the very next day, the people went out into the field, and Avimelech was told about it. He took his men, divided them into three groups, and lay in wait in the field. When he saw the people going out of the city, he came out of the hiding and slaughtered them. Avimelech and his group rushed forward and occupied the entrance of the city gate. This is Shechem while the other two groups attacked all those in the field and killed them. Avimelech fought against the city all that day, captured it, killed its people, destroyed its buildings, 
and sowed its lands with salt. If this sounds familiar, it is absolutely what happened with the Midianites. When the Midianites came against Israel and Gideon was raised up, the Midianites would come in and they'd destroy the cities, they'd destroy the crops, they'd sow the fields with salt. He's doing the same exact thing. He is not a judge. He is not a deliverer. He's actually bringing them into more and more trouble through his scorched earth tactics. Verse 46, when all the men in the fortress at Shechem heard about this, they took refuge in the stronghold of the temple of Al-Barit. Our false god will help us. Avimelech was told that the men from Shechem, from the Shechem fortress had gathered together. So he led all his men up to Mount Zivmon, where he took an axe in his hand, cut a branch off a tree, and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to those with him, quick, do just as you saw me. They all did likewise, each man cutting off his branch, and they followed Avimelech. The command when they came into the land was to not destroy the trees. This dude's bad news, super bad. They put the branches up against the stronghold, set them on fire, and burned down the stronghold so that all the people from the Shechem fortress died about a thousand men and women. Then Avimelech went to Savetz, came up against, set up camp against Savetz, and captured it. But there was a fortified tower inside the city, and all the men and women took refuge in it, everyone in the city. They shut themselves inside and went up into the roof of the tower. However, when Avimelech approached the tower to attack it, and then came up close to the tower's door in order to burn it down. A woman, <laughs> I love this, a woman dropped an upper millstone on Avimelech's head, cracking his skull. You know, this is the second time we've had a woman come and be an amazing warrior. Remember JL? She took that big pike and just drove it through the Cicero's skull. And now we have another woman who's taking the upper part of the millstone, this centerpiece here, that centerpiece there. The upper part of that millstone, that is not light. If you've ever seen a millstone at work, it's heavy. You put the grain in and then, and you turn it and you crank it until it grinds it up. She takes this, man, and she just yeets it off the top of the tower, crushes his head. But it's interesting to see Avimelech's response to this. He quickly called out to the young man holding his armor, draw your sword and finish me off so that people won't say a woman killed me. Pretty sure they're still going to talk about it. Scripture obviously points it out. They still do talk about it. So his attendant ran him through, and he died. Now when the men of Israel saw that Avimelech was dead, they all went back home. Problem solved. Adonai took care of business. Used some random woman. We don't even know her name. Some random woman, some random millstone just clocked this guy right in the head. Dead, gone. This is how God paid back Avimelech for the wrong he did to his father in murdering his 70 brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for all the wrong they had done. On them came the curse of Yotam, the son of Yerubbabel. The Yalkut Shimoni, a commentary on this particular passage says, it's as if God said to Abimelech, wicked one, you who murdered 70 people on one stone, you will be killed by a stone. 
super interesting, Yeshua would echo something similar. The stone that the builders rejected is the stone that the very kingdom is going to be built upon. It's cool how Adonai uses those different little things. In Proverbs chapter 26, I believe that Shalom was thinking of this story when he wrote, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it turned back on him. So remember, when Gideon has a dream, or excuse me, the men, when Gideon's surrounding the Midianites, they have a dream, and they say, I had a dream that a giant loaf of barley rolled through like a boulder, and rolled into our camp and crushed our camp. And the man interpreting says, hey, that's Gideon. Gideon's that barley loaf. And so I think it's super interesting here that Shalomo says, he who rolls a stone will have it turned back on him. Avimelech thought in killing the offspring of Gideon that he could become the new king. Man, that stone rolled back on him fast. So then what does a healthy relationship look like? We see a great example of what was not good. If we turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, it goes on to say this, and we're going to close here. Brothers, suppose someone is caught doing something wrong. You who have the spirit should set him right, but in a spirit of humility, keeping an eye on yourselves so that so that you won't be tempted as well. Bear one another's burdens. In this way, you will be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's really nothing, he's fooling himself. So let each of you scrutinize his own actions. Then if you do find something to boast about, At least the boasting will be based on what you have actually done and not merely on a judgment that you're better than someone else. For each person will carry his own load, but whoever is being instructed in the word of God should share all the good things he has with his instructor. Don't delude yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. A person reaps what he sows. Those who keep sowing in the field of their old nature in order to meet its demands will eventually reap ruin. I don't know if any of you have realized, a big realization in my life is that the, um, the old nature is never satisfied. It always wants more. It leads to death. But those who keep sowing in the field of the Spirit will reap from the Spirit everlasting life. So let us not grow weary of doing what is good. For if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Therefore, as the opportunity arises, let us do what is good to everyone, and especially to the family of those who are trustingly 